This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. So we are in a series going through the book of 1 Peter called A Sojourner's Hope. And what we're doing is we're walking through this letter that Peter has written to these Christians who are spread, scattered all throughout what is modern day Turkey. And he's not writing to any specific church, but to these groups of Christians who now find themselves not only scattered, but also find themselves marginalized. Uh, Just imagine yourself uh, waking up one day and being in a place that's familiar, but yet altogether different. Uh, Being in a place that seems familiar, but now your relationship to that place has completely changed. I think you'd be confused. It's, It's almost hard to imagine what I mean that seems so abstract. But that's what Peter is telling them. Peter is writing this letter to encourage them of who they are in Christ. And he calls them elect. And we said in the first chapter that what that means is, is that they are now called out from the world to be on mission in the world. And now because of that calling out to be on mission, it has changed their relationship to society. Uh, They now are resident aliens or exiles or sojourners. Uh, which is the word that we're using for this series. And as we know about resident aliens, we know that uh, a, a person who's a resident alien is more than a tourist. I mean, you actually live in that land. You're, you're called to that land for a certain purpose, but yet it's not your homeland. And so to be a resident alien as they are means that they are not merely passing through, but they also don't fully belong. And they're actually there for a reason, for a purpose. And that shapes everything about their life. But they have some questions about that. They're confused, much like we can be confused. What does it mean to live our full identity as Christians, our full identity in Christ in society around us? And that is essentially what Peter is speaking into in this letter. Now, this morning marks a transition in his letter. He has spent verses 1 through 12 telling them 
what it means to be born again, that they actually are born again and have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And he's told them who they are and all that Christ has done. And he's telling them that this hope that is sure should shape every aspect of their life. And then now in verse 13, all the way through chapter two, verses 12, he transitions to tell them a little bit about what that means, okay? So now that you have this living hope, how does that shape you in the society around you? And in verses 13 through 21 this morning, uh, we will see two of four commands that he gives them. So he hasn't given any commands. And in this section now on holiness, he's gonna give four commands, four imperatives. And this morning, we're gonna take up two of them. Next week, we're gonna take up the next two. Before we do that, I have to tell you, um, I was looking forward to this week uh, as I laid out the series. And in your Bible, if you have a Bible or if you opened pretty much any Bible, every section is gonna be labeled with a heading. And my Bible says, and I looked, NIV says this too, called to be holy, that's the section. And I know what that tends to mean in our minds, right? I say called to be holy and our minds go to a certain place. And usually, Uh, It doesn't draw us with excitement. It draws us with a sense of duty. And duty isn't all bad, right? Duty is a good thing. It may be a lost virtue in our culture. But the reality is, is that duty conjures up in us oftentimes an inappropriate sense of striving, an inappropriate sense of fear. There's proper fear, which we'll talk about. It's in the passage. But oftentimes duty Uh, produces fear, the nasty kind, the kind that right underneath that fear is guilt and shame. So I know even saying the word holy, which is all throughout the Bible, that's happening in your minds. That's happening in your hearts. And uh, I don't want that for you. I thought about what do I want? What do I want for us this morning? And really, what do I want for us in general? And I came away, and I've told some of you this week that I talked to on Saturday at a soccer game and other people, I told you that one of the things that's happened to me this week is not only for my own life, but also for everyone at New City, I long for us to be holy as a congregation. I want that for every single one of you and for me. Because I'm convinced that holiness is what every single one of us longs for. And not, not just us, but, but everyone longs for holiness when properly understood. And so this morning, I want us to see two things along those lines. I want us to see, first, that we are called to be holy. Seems pretty clear from the passage, right? Look at verse 15. I'm gonna jump in the middle of the passage that we read. It's a quote from Leviticus. There's even quotation marks in our Bible. You shall be holy for I am holy. What is holiness? Is it, is it morality? Is it merely morality? Well, it's helpful to understand even where he gets this quote from in Leviticus. What is Leviticus? What is that book about? Uh, Leviticus is essentially the, a constitution uh, written for the people of God as they were a nation, as they were a country, and they were marked out as a nation to represent God on the earth. And so there are all types of laws, uh, which is why it reads like legislation, because it is. It's a constitution for the people of God. But any nation, uh, you know a lot about the character of the nation by its laws. 
right? And in this case, you know a lot about the God of Israel by his laws. And they were beautiful and they were good and they were right. But what is holiness in Leviticus? You know, people aren't the only ones called holy or called to be holy in Leviticus. If you read it, tables are called to be holy and chairs and garments and lampstands. And I, I don't know what an immoral table is, but it sounds scary to me, right? Obviously, holiness is more than morality. Fundamentally, holiness is a certain status related to God. You see, holiness is about a change of status. It is about being set apart. You see, God is holy because he is other than anything else. He is holy. He has a unique status. And anything that belongs to God, therefore, must be holy. It must be transferred to the status that God would have it have. Holiness, a set-apartness, right? So it's not less than holiness, I mean morality. Holiness is not less than morality. It is morality, but oftentimes we think it's mainly morality, and this is what that would look like, all right? So we tend to depersonalize holiness. We tend to remove it from relationship, don't we? I mean, we all know that if I love someone, like my spouse, if I love someone, and I now have a new status of one flesh because we're married now. That's a new status, one flesh. That the way I live my life will change in order to live in light of the fact that we are now one flesh. It better change. Otherwise, I'm not living married. I'm not, I'm not reflecting my new status of married. And so if we are now holy in Jesus Christ, Peter is saying, of course it will affect the way you live. Of course that will flow out. That is, you are now implicated by your new relationship to this holy one. I wanna tell you a story I heard uh, recently. Uh, There was a mother who was a single mom, moved to, uh, let's say, this country, and she had a dream for her son, her only son. And it was for him to get the best education he could, to go to college and graduate debt-free and then go into the world and have a great impact. And so she had no marketable skills that would make her a lot of money, so she worked really hard, and she worked multiple jobs, and she did exactly that. She put her son through college debt-free. Now, imagine the son who graduates from college writes his mother a letter, and all along, she had been telling him, son, you're gonna go to college, you're gonna graduate debt-free, and I want you to be honest, I want you to help others, and I want you to work hard. She had, she had put that in his mind and heart. Be honest, work hard, and be kind to others. Well, when he graduates, he, he writes her a letter and says, thank you so much for doing all that you've done, for working as hard as you have to put me through college debt-free. Uh, I've, I've enclosed a little bit of money, and I want you to know that I'll, I'll see you maybe on your birthday and definitely at Christmas, but other than that, I really don't need you anymore. Uh, Other than that, I'm set now. I've I've arrived where you wanted me to arrive. I want you to know, though, I'm being honest, I'm helping others, and I'm working hard. Is that okay? No, of course it's not. But he's being moral, though, right? He's doing everything she said. He's being honest, he's helping others, he's working hard. Why is that not okay? Okay. 
Because you see, it wasn't mainly about that. It was mainly about the relationship. You see, it was the, the, the relationship that should shape his love for his mother. And we know that. It's about his relationship that should lead him, should implicate him to live a life in reflection to what she had sacrificed for him. And so holiness is similar to that. It's being set apart for God's use. And then if we look back at verse Uh, Let's actually go to verse 14 to show you also where this relationship aspect comes from. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So it's as obedient children. You see, it starts with the status of child. Now that they are children of God, they are called to be holy because their status in relationship to God has changed. And then he says this, if it's not only morality, if we tend to think of holiness as morality, but we also tend to think as holiness as a religious thing, don't we? Like holiness is a church thing, it's a religious thing, it's what church people do, or it's morality. Well, look what he says here in, uh, after quoting uh, Leviticus. He says, or before he quotes Leviticus, he says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. You could translate this as in your whole way of life or in your entire lifestyle. So you see, holiness is all-encompassing. You and I are called to be holy in every area of our life. You see, we are set apart to be used by God as children of God and to reflect that reality in every area of our life. And most of us uh, tend to segment God off into one or two areas of our life, right? Now, as evangelical Christians, as uh, this church is an evangelical uh, church, uh, we do say, I want to be holy in you know, my religious life, prayer. The Bible reading, we're really about the Bible. In the evangelical church, we're really about prayer, which are all really good things. And it might leak into money, right? Stewardship, that's a big deal. So I wanna be holy in stewarding my money. That's true, but you have more resources than that. You have more areas of your life that God cares about. So we need to be holy in our relationships. We need to be holy in our relationships to one another, uh, to those in society, Uh, We need to be marked off by love, we'll read later in the letter. Love for one another, love for the world. So we need to steward our relationships, we need to steward our property, we need to steward our bodies, right? I mean, we we learned that whatever you think is gonna happen about the future, it changes the way you live now. And so we are called to be holy in every area of our life. Now we know that not everything is black and white, right? Right? Unlike Leviticus, you know, I think this is interesting. He quotes Leviticus, which had very specific rules. But Peter learned the hard way in Acts 10 that those laws and rules in Leviticus don't apply in the same way now after Jesus Christ, right? So he, he sees in a vision in Acts 10 that he's not allowed to eat or be with people who aren't Jewish. And he says, I can't do that. To the Lord himself, it takes three times to have the same vision in order for him to realize, oh, actually, some things have changed. But one thing that hasn't changed is God's people are set apart to be holy 
in all of their lives. And so that's why if we go back to verse 13, he tells them in order to be holy in all of your conduct, to be holy uh, in every area of your life, it's going to require what? Verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you could translate this in some of your Bibles. It says, girding up the loins of your mind. So in that day and age, men and women wore long flowing robes. And if they were going to work hard or do something, uh, they would roll up their robes and they would tuck it in their belt. They would gird them up. Uh, we might say, roll up the sleeves of your mind, right? You're about, to, you're about to do something that takes effort, that takes deliberateness, which is what sober-mindedness means, right? Not to be distracted. We might use that word of, we might think of a professor almost, professorial, thinking I'm sober-minded, I'm being deliberative, I'm being thoughtful. But it's not just cognitive, right? In the Bible, they don't, it, the Bible doesn't use words like we use. So mind is way more than cognitive. You see, you realize that what you love lets you justify lots of things in your thinking, right? So the mind better be more than cognitive, right? There's, there's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous that says, and this is true of any addiction, it says, it was your best thinking that got you here. You see, your desires lead your mind. So he's saying, therefore, be sober-minded and be ready. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. It has to be all-encompassing. And that's why he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why are you rolling up the sleeves of your mind? Because you need to understand, you need to work hard to set your hope fully on the grace of God because it is what you love that will draw you towards it. Whatever you love, whatever you see happening in the future will draw you towards it. So he's reminding them, put your hope in Jesus. And I think this word fully deserves just a minute. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To be fully set on something is to be undivided. Is to be undivided in confidence on Jesus and to place no confidence in things that society is training them to put their hope in. What was important in this society? Three main things, and I think they'll sound familiar to us. They were trained to put their hope in status, social status, education, and money. That was the entire Greco-Roman world. Status, social status, which is why, always why you were jockeying to get to the next status. And in that society, similar to ours, you, there are games you can play. Right? You may not be born into that status, but you, there are games you can play to get to the status you want. So they would, they would shape their whole lives to get to that status. That's what it looks like to place your hope fully on something. You're undivided towards that thing. Status. Education, money. Now that's familiar to us, right? So then we just have to ask the question and just turn this into a question. What are we setting our hopes on? And I probably shouldn't have said hopes. I should say hope, like with a capital H. What are you setting your hope 
on? Is it in social status, education, money? Let's just take social status for a second. They lost social status overnight. They became Christians. They now all of a sudden were marginalized, put to the, put to the edges. Now we in America, we, uh, we up until now, and even in cities like Orlando, I think still, it actually helps you to be a Christian. At least it helps you to say that you're a Christian. Uh, I heard a story of, um, of a seminary professor when, before he was a professor, uh, he used to meet with a friend of his, a college friend of his, and they would talk about the gospel. And as they were talking about the gospel, his friend, who was an agnostic atheist, um, would say things like, uh, you guys are crazy. I, I don't understand why you would live your life that way. I don't understand why you would not live your life how you wanted and you follow a dead guy. And so he met with him month after month, month after month with, with seemingly no change. And then one day, uh, they sat down and his agnostic friend said, hey, I really want you to recommend some churches um, in, in the area, some Baptist churches. And uh, this professor who had shared the gospel with him for months and months and built a relationship with him and said, when did you become a Christian? And the guy scoffed and said, I'm not a Christian. I just decided that I want to go into politics and so I need to be a part of a church. Okay, that, that was not happening here. And soon enough, it won't happen for us. Soon enough, to be a Christian means that you probably won't be able to run for politics because you'll be ostracized right away. Oh, he's a Christian. That she's a Christian. So social status, uh, if our hope is in social status, uh, Christianity is, is not a good strategy. And it wasn't then either. And the other thing that I wanna say here before we move on from this is um, what this reminded me of, of setting my hope fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what it did is it put me in a mode of putting myself in the future, imagining when this is going to happen. And that it will happen. And then it, it brings up into my heart and mind things that I need to recalibrate in my life. So I thought, what is a very practical way in which I'm doing that in other areas of my life? And I think you probably are too. And this came to mind. Uh, life planning, okay? First of all, I think it's a good idea to have a life plan, okay? I think that's a really good idea because someone's gonna plan your life. Maybe it should be you, Okay? So I think it's a good idea. But what specific aspect of life planning? I think at some point, most of us are gonna stop working for a paycheck, right? We call it retirement. I think there are good ways to retire and not so good ways to retire. But all of us probably won't be employable every waking hour that we actually live, okay? So no matter where we are, we're gonna end up Retiring, And for, for some of us, our life plan is 20 years from now, 10 years from now, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, even 60 years maybe from now, your life planning. And one of the things you're doing is you're thinking of how will I provide for myself financially when that happens, right? So you're, you know it's gonna happen, just not, you may not be sure when, and it affects the way you spend your money now or it ought to affect the way you spend your money now. You ought to be saving for that time, investing in the future that you know is coming. So there's a sober-mindedness about it. I need to set money aside to provide for me and my, my family. So it would have ramifications on your life planning now. 
You live differently now. So now if I understand that my life planning is not, let's say, even 60 years, it's actually three trillion years or infinity. That is what I want to be planning my life for now, not just the next 60 years, yes, but I'm in it, I'm in it for eternity. And if we are following Christ, it shapes our life plan now. And then all of a sudden, things begin to look different. Priorities and all types of things begin to look different. And Peter knows that, which is why he's telling them, you, us, we need to set our hope fully on the grace of God that will be revealed in Jesus Christ on the last day. So, first, we are called to holiness and holiness is being set apart to be used by God in every area of our life. That was actually the first imperative. The second one, and this is our second point, is we may be asking ourselves, well, how does that happen? And Peter says, well, not only are you called to holiness, you were bought for holiness. Look with me here, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, before we get into this, I think we got to clear up verse 17. Fear, what does that mean? This is an important theme and it'll come up again later in the letter. And so I'm gonna deal with it more fully then, but I do need to say this. When he says fear, conduct yourselves with fear, he doesn't mean scared. He doesn't mean you're scared that you might be destroyed on the judgment day. Children aren't scared that their fathers are gonna destroy them. Even if you had a strict father, if he's good, which we know God is a infinitely good father, he's not gonna destroy his children, but he is gonna discipline his children. He is gonna lead them because he wants to shape them and form them into holy people, we saw. And so fear in the Bible, in this sense, means awe and wonder. And what happens in your life when you have awe and wonder for something? You don't have a minimalist attitude towards it, do you? So a minimalist attitude in our relationship with God sounds like this. What's, what, what do I have to give? Like, let's just say financially. I've had conversations with people. So when you say that, uh, that we should tithe, is that on gross or is that on net? I'm like, either one would be probably better than you're doing now, right? I'm just kidding, I don't say that. But you see, what, even if I did say that, what am I getting at? Am I trying to shame the person? No. The spirit of it is to be in awe and wonder of something is not to be a minimalist. It's to say, what can I give? What can I do? What can I, what can I offer? And so Peter wants us to conduct themselves in that manner. And then he tells them why. Why should they be in awe and wonder? Why should they not live a minimalist attitude or a minimalist life towards, well, how far can I go without breaking any rules? 
And how little can I give of my time, talent, and treasure in order to be okay? Right? He tells them that's not the right perspective. Why? Because you weren't bought with measurable things. You were bought with the infinite blood of Christ. The word actually is ransomed. You could say redeemed, verse 18. Knowing that you were redeemed or ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, the word ransomed or redeemed, in this sense, has, in our culture, been relegated mainly to religious talk, right? If you use the word redemption, there's usually a religious aspect to it. Not always, right? There are redemptive stories, and that's good. That's right. But in this day and age, the the first word uh, in the original language, it, it was a technical word, a technical word that was in use in their culture, And so in the Greco-Roman culture, to refer to something being redeemed or ransomed was to refer to the freeing of a slave, okay? And so the slave would receive their freedom after saving up a certain amount of money. So they would save up a certain amount of money, and once they received the amount of money to buy their freedom, they couldn't just, they didn't just pay their slave owner, right? Their master. They would go to a temple, Whatever God that their culture worshiped or their master worshiped, they would go to the temple and they would take that money and they would give it into the treasury of that God, okay? And then the money would sort of go through the treasury. Of course, a certain amount was, was, was taken out uh, for the temple, but it would go through them and then the temple itself would pay the slave master off. So why, why did they go through this? Well, it was because although this person who had saved up enough money to free themselves from being a slave over here, uh, they actually now were a slave to the God who bought them. Imagine that. Imagine saving up all the money that you can, all the money you have, maybe every dime to your name. And then going to a God and saying, I am now buying my freedom from here. And that God saying, you brought everything and I take everything. And now you're my slave. That was the reality. In verse, chapter two, verse 16, which we'll get to, uh, Peter says, having a good conscience, I'm sorry, that's in the wrong verse. Let's see, which one is it? Well, I know what it is, so I'll just tell you instead of reading it. How do I know that Peter had this in mind, in other words? How do I know he had that system in mind where you go and you pay off this God and they pay you off and then now you belong to this God? Because ransomed and redeemed has a long Old Testament history, of course, in the Bible. But later on, he tells these people, you are now free, but do not use your freedom as a way for evil. Why? Because you are now slaves of God. But you see, the difference between being slave of a false God and being the slave of a true God is that rather than you bringing all you have to buy your freedom, the true God gives all that he has to buy your freedom. You see, that's the biblical God. That is biblical freedom. That you come admitting you're a slave, admitting that you are captured, that you need ransom, but you come open-handed. You say, I have nothing. And that God, the biblical God, Jesus Christ, he says, bought you. 
You see, Peter is reminding them not only that they were ransomed, but they were ransomed from futile ways. I read somewhere um, that in some in, uh, uh, camps of torture, so all throughout history, um, one of the, the ways that they would torture people and yet keep them alive is they would call them out into a courtyard and there would be a big pile of stones over here and they would call everyone to lift these huge heavy stones. It would take them all day to lift them. There was a beautiful wall that they had built the day before. Now today I'm gonna tear it down and I'm gonna go build it over here. And that was my day's work. And then I go sleep and I come back out the next day and I do it again. So I just built this wall and I, and I break it down and I put it up over here. And you say, what's the point? There is no point. It's futile. All the work that you spent building this beautiful wall today, you're gonna break it down tomorrow and you're gonna do it again over here. It's vain. It has no meaning. It's futile. And that's what he's saying. You've been ransomed from that life. Oh yeah, you used to think that everything was all great. You used to think that everything had meaning, but not like this. You actually lived the ways you inherited were futile and you have been rescued from those ways. Your life has now been infused with meaning. Your life has now been infused with purpose. So if that's true, why would you go back to, to tearing down the wall for no other reason than to build it back over here, to play these games? He says, you've been ransomed from that. So in this case, he's saying, Yes, it's true. You used to be affirmed by your society. All around you, you fit in. And now you are misunderstood. That's true. Now you are marginalized. That's true. But it's also true that you were captured by a futile way of life, but now you're called to a holy way of life that there's freedom in. And it was true that you were ignorant of God and controlled by your own desires but now you know Christ and you are God's children. So we'll close with this before we go to the table. And that is holiness is a call to life. Holiness is a call to meaningful, true, purpose-filled, mission, life. And there's no way to buy into this. There's no way to set your eyes on the next status and save up all you have to buy it. The only way into this is to put your entire faith in the God who gave up all he had to buy it for you. And that's exactly what we're gonna go celebrate. Let's pray. Father, you have bought us, you have won us, you now own us and we are so thankful because you are a good, gracious, kind, loving father who sent his only begotten son to purchase us, to ransom us. We had nothing, you had everything and you gave it all so that we could have everything with you. I pray that as we sing and as we come to your table in just a moment, that we would be reminded that you have given us 
a future and a hope in Jesus. And it was nothing that we could have bought on our own, but you purchased it all. And the only thing that makes us worthy to come to this meal with you is to empty our hands of any effort we would give you and to receive your gift of righteousness for free.